Well, if everybody has a Bible, if you would turn to Isaiah 54, and our message is entitled, Seek the Lord While There's Time. Amen. So it's interesting, as a way of introduction, I kind of want to set the context here, what we're going to talk about. We know the Bible has 66 books. It contains 66 books. And Isaiah has 66 chapters. And so the Bible is divided into 39 books of the Old Testament, which is mainly speaks of law and judgment, is mainly what the Old Testament books speak of. And the 27 books of the New Testament are predominantly of his grace and mercy. That, that is more the theme, right? And Isaiah can be divided in the same way. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is predominantly dealing with judgment on Israel and the nations, judgment and the law, and the second 27 chapters mainly deal with, on a more positive note, God's grace and restoration. And in the middle of Isaiah's 27 chapters of grace and restoration, right dab in the middle is Isaiah 53, the great chapter describing the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Isaiah's report of the Lamb of God taking the punishment that was due everyone sitting in this room. That's right in the middle of his great chapters. We are the travail of his soul sitting right here. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. He saw the travail of his soul, the fruit of his labor. And so Isaiah 53 tells us that the price has been paid. And so Isaiah 54 and 55 begin to explain the results of that. So Isaiah 54, at the beginning there, it says, Sing, O barren, that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. And so God is proclaiming there, he's saying, one result of Isaiah 53 is Israel has been like a barren woman, but she will miraculously break forth and bring forth children. She will no longer be desolate. Bring forth a multitude because God is her husband. And he tells Israel down in verse 7, he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercy I will gather thee. He'll bring them back. And that's happened to some of us in here, hasn't it? We've gotten away from the Lord, turned our back for a small moment. But what has he done? He's had mercy on us, hasn't he? And all of us have not always walked with the Lord the way we should. And God has had mercy and brought us back. And we can praise and thank him for that. In verse 8, he says, In his wrath he hid his face from Israel, just like he did us as sinners. But it says that in his everlasting kindness, he will have mercy on them. And that spill speaks of the future, because we know that one day, according to Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. And that'll be a blessing. But now, he's having mercy on us, isn't he? We've been grafted in to Israel's vine, and actually we are piggybacking on their new covenant. The covenant was given to them, not to the Gentiles. Now, we're partaking to that. We're, in a sense, piggybacking all of it. But the point I'm trying to make here is all of this points back. We're pointing back to Isaiah 53, the cross. It's all because of the cross, that our suffering Savior has paid our debt. That's what it's all about. And so as we come to Isaiah 55, there's a gracious invitation there given in Isaiah 55 to all who are thirsty. It's made available. 
And why we're back to because it was Calvary. That's why we can have this gracious invitation to come and drink. Because, listen, every physical and spiritual blessing, saint or sinner, anyone ever enjoys, but especially us as his saints, anything we ever enjoy, all is because of the death and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and the price that was paid with his blood. We can never speak too much of that. We can never get away from that. Never should get away from that. And so with that's in mind, let's read Isaiah 55. And it says in verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come, come ye to the waters, and he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. That goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So what we have here in this first verse is there's an invitation given, and it's given to two groups of people. And the first group we see there in verse 1 is the thirsty. He says, ho, everyone that thirsts, he invites them to come. Now, God has given us certain and desires and needs, and they all point to him. Now, we can do without food for 21 days, and then starvation begins to set in. But unless it's supernatural, your average person can't go more than three to five days without water, or you'll die without water. We have a great need for water. Let me ask you, have you ever really been thirsty? I mean, we got water everywhere here in America. There's water fountains almost anywhere you go. Water's easily available. It's not that way in all parts of the world. They think we're rich mainly because of all the water we have, people that visit this country. 
But when you're really thirsty, you will do almost anything you have to to get a drink. I mean, I remember back when I was 21 years old hiking up in Colorado in the summer, and I'm 7,000 feet walking these ridges, and I mean, it was 90-some-plus degrees, and I sweat a lot, but I wasn't sweating then because it just evaporated as soon as it hit the air. But I mean, I got thirsty, and I knew there was these springs up there that were safe to drink out of, and I couldn't find it. I mean, I was like, this is crazy. I was so thirsty, I couldn't stand it. I just never forget that, how thirsty I was. And when I finally got there, I just could not drink enough. But what's God talking about here? He's calling for the spiritually thirsty, isn't he? You that are thirsty, not, not physically thirsty. That's just supposed to point to that. Ones that are desperate, like a man that's been wandering for days in the desert with nothing to drink. Desperate for God's presence and power. That's what I think he's calling for here. He's asking, are you thirsty for that? The psalmist in Psalm 42 cries this. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so our thirst for water is only to point to our more crucial need for our thirst and need for the living God, the living water that we need to drink of, right? So listen to this. David, listen to the desperation in his heart in Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And what does he say? To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. And he wrote that when he's fleeing from Saul and he's, he's away from the tabernacle. He's away from that tent of meeting. And he's saying, oh, I just long to see God. I'm in a dry and thirsty land and I long to see his power and his glory. That's what he had seen. And do we long to see the power and the glory of God like David? That's the question we have to ask. Do we thirst for his presence, for his loving kindness? Because that's what David went on to say. That song we sing, he says, I long to see thy glory and the power. And he says, for thy loving kindness, which is what you experience when you're in his presence, is better than life itself. And boy, if you've experienced that, experienced his presence, known the loving kindness of the Lord, it is better than life, isn't it? Amen. I know you all know what I'm talking about. But God's making a glorious invitation, and he's making a passionate plea here. He is. That first word, in some translations, I don't know why they leave it out, but that ho is important <laughs> because that's a passionate plea. It's to call attention to something an invitation to call, to make an announcement. It's the equivalent of, in English, it would be, listen up. It's like when you're watching TV, you know, and when you do that, everyone listened up, right? And when you're watching TV and all of a sudden, this is a special report, you know, hey, kids, be quiet. Like, that's what this is like. He's, he's getting their attention. And that's what God's doing because they had vendors, just like we have vendors in baseball and football games that walk up and down here, coke here. Trying to get your attention. Well, they had water vendors that did that. Oh, got water here. And those people were thirsty over there, and they needed water, and they'd get their attention. And that's what God's doing. He's offering water to the thirsty. But listen, unlike the vendor, it's free to everybody. There's no price. There's only one condition, though, and what is that? Three times we get it. What does he say? You have to come. 
condition is to come. And that's the condition. The Lord Jesus Christ, he did the same thing. When he's up at that festival, this is what it says in John 7. And it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, it said Jesus stood up and he cried. He didn't just whisper this. He didn't make a passing comment. It said he cried and he said, if any man thirst, oh, they'd have been listening to that, let him come unto me and drink. The invitation is always and only to the thirsty. But the invitation is come freely. Just ask. Just come and ask. It's there available. He told the woman at the well. In John 4, what did he say here? He said, if you would only ask me, read it, that's what he said, if you would only ask me, I would give you living water. Water that whoever drank that would never thirst again. And to someone like her that lives in that hot, dry climate, that was music to her ears. And her answer to her was, oh, give me this water. I'll never thirst again living here. Never have to, oh, give me this water. And what was the answer? The Holy Spirit gave him a word of knowledge. And what did he say to her? This was his answer to give me that water to the woman. He says, well, go call your husband. Huh. But what's he doing? He's creating a thirst in her, isn't he? A spiritual thirst because God, through the gift of that Holy Spirit, was doing what? He was exposing her sin, exposing her need, showing her that she was a sinner in need of the life-giving water of forgiveness. Well, when you got conviction by the Holy Spirit on you, you are thirsty. You go, oh, i got to get rid of this. God's dealing with me. I need a thirst. And did it work? Did it work on this woman? Oh, boy, she became an evangelist. It worked. Next thing you know, you read, it says, she said, come and see a man who told me everything I've done. First, she's like, he's a prophet. But then later, she's saying, is this not the Christ? Oh, boy. She came to him, and she drank deep and caused others to drink deep, too. She's sharing that gospel with him. But what we see here in Isaiah 55, 1 is God is not just giving us the basic necessity of water, but what does he also say here? He says, come ye to the waters, ye that have no money, come ye buy and eat, yea. And he says, come buy wine and milk. And wine represents joy and celebration. And what does milk represent? That's daily nourishment. Because when God took him to Canaan's fair and happy land out of Egypt, he said, I'm going to bring you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Oh, so what's he doing? What's he saying here? He's calling them. What's the invitation to? He's calling them to a feast, to a spiritual feast. And he's calling us to that. But just like them, guess what? We are bankrupt. We don't have any money. We don't have any money for this spiritual feast to enter in. We're like what we've been talking about on Wednesday night. We're like Lazarus, the beggar in Luke 16. He couldn't get into any feast, could he? And spiritually, we're that way. We're like the thief on the cross. Nothing to offer God. What could he offer, that thief on the cross? Yet, what's the invitation here? Come and buy. Twice, he tells us to buy with no money. Well, how is that possible? How is that possible to buy with no money? 
one word, grace. It's the grace of God. We're back to Isaiah 53. That's the reason for this invitation. It's right there in the middle of these chapters on grace and restoration. God's gift of his son and his blood enables us to come and buy even though we're broke. <laughs> and the songs, the hymns, tell us that. Jesus paid it all, didn't he? All to him I owe. Or what about this song that we sing? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And so the invitation, he's bidding us to come, isn't it? And so I'm coming, but my only plea is what? The only price I can offer is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what about this hymn? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And the song goes on to say, In my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's all we have. So we need to remember that God offers us here. He's spiritually offering us life, glory, and power. But it's not because we earn it. It's no amount of prayer, fasting, and works can ever earn that, can it? But simply because of the price. That's why Isaiah 53 is there. That's why I brought it up. Simply because of the price he paid on the cross to redeem us. But we see here there's another group in verse 2 that he pleads with. Verse 2, the thirsty, and he says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which satisfies not? He says, Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. But listen, once again, we all have a desire and a need for food, shelter, clothing, and protection. And listen, listen politicians know that, don't they? And so are the two things they are always going to promise, especially in this time we live in now. They're going to say, we're going to give you a strong economy and safety. Oh, they can promise that, and if people believe it, they'll vote for you. They don't care what your name is, if they really think you can come through on that. But listen, people have never changed. Everybody wants food. Isn't that what it gets down to? You want to know you've got a place to live and food on your table, and you and your family aren't going to be starving and nowhere to go, right? That's what it all boils down to, doesn't it? And it was that way back in Jesus' day. So Jesus, he wasn't much of a politician. So John 6, he feeds the multitudes. And I've said it before, but back then, bread was a scarce commodity. And here's the bread king showed up. He's given us what we never have enough of, and that's bread. And this bread was really good. Where'd you get the bakery from, Jesus? Where'd that come from? Oh, it came from heaven. <laughs> that's how it came when he prayed. And guess what? When that happened and they ate that bread, it said they came by force and wanted to make him a king. We're going to force you to be a king because you're giving us what we want. Somehow, it doesn't say how, he got away from them. And it said he went up into a mountain alone to pray. He wasn't much of a politician, was he? But when he came down, they found him the next day. And he confronted them. 
He confronted them about where they're coming from. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, not because you see who I am, the God, the creator of the universe, your Lord. No, 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 that's not why you're seeking me. He says, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled, that's all you're after. That's all the deeper they were. And men haven't changed. You ate of the loaves and were filled. And he told them, he says, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat or food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. So he's telling them there is only one food that is worth striving for. The spiritual food that he will give that brings everlasting life. And that's what the Lord's saying here in Isaiah 2, isn't he? Isn't that what we're getting here? He says, why are you laboring for that which brings no lasting satisfaction? That's what he's asking them, his second group. Why are you doing that? Why are you spending money on what is no bread? That's what it says in the Hebrew, no bread. That which is not bread. You think you're getting something? He says, you're spending all your time and money and energy to get no bread, not bread. And you work fatiguing hours. That's what the word labor means, working fatiguingly. Fatiguing hours to get a better car, house, boat, to bring it up to date. And he says, but are you really satisfied with that? That's the question the Lord's asking through Isaiah to this second group. Now, Jonathan hails over at our house Friday night for the people that came, and he talked about contentment. But when you're not content, the Bible says we're to be content with what? Just food and clothing, just the basics, right? It says we're to be content with that. But you know what? When you're not content with that, you start laboring to get more. And I think a lot of times then the faith message can become a cloak for covetousness. Because, well, I claimed a better car, claimed a better house, claimed a boat. And the way God's going to provide is by me working 80 hours a week. And tell me that hasn't happened. It's happened. And guess what happens, though? This is what the message is here in, the, in verse 2. Your spiritual life suffers when that takes place. Because you're, you're pursuing the wrong thing. That's what Isaiah's telling us here. That's what the Lord's telling us. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that means only, and he says, all of those things you're worried about will be provided for you. You don't have to strive. Because not only do you suffer spiritually, but you work that many hours and your family is going to suffer too, spiritually, because you're not there. So you're making good money. And you say, well, I got these prayers answered because of all these blessings. But hey, where are you at spiritually? And let me ask you, we got to think about it. Has anything you acquired really brought satisfaction? You all know what my house looks like. I mean, I'm not living on Skid Row, but I've lived on Skid Row. And I'm saying neither one, getting it and not having it, neither one, that's not where your satisfaction is going to be at. Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. We need to be striving for the right thing. So what are your pursuits? Where are they taking you? So it could just be you like to hunt, garden, paint, cook, watch TV, or post on Facebook. That's just the kind of things you like to do. You know, nothing that is really sinful in itself, but listen, when those things consume you, and believe me, I know it's easy to have it happen. 
then there's no time for prayer, no time for reading the word, no time for evangelism, not no time for anything spiritual. It's easy to let that stuff just crowd your day out and the next day out and the next week and the next month. Well, Solomon said he gave himself to do things that in and of themselves weren't sin. You read Ecclesiastes. It says he built houses, he planted vineyards, gardens, and orchards. He got some cattle, small cattle, he said, many as he wanted, gathered silver and gold and listened to music, got some musicians and sat around and listened to them jam. That's what Solomon did. He said, I did whatever my heart desired. I didn't hold anything back from what I wanted to do. And none of those things there are, are evil in and of themselves, right? But then he said when it was all over with, he stepped back and took a look at it all. Looked on everything he had. Looked on everything he'd labored to do. And here was his verdict. Here's Solomon's verdict. Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun with all of what he had. Everything the world has to offer you is not going to give you what you really need. And that's what we're getting here in Isaiah 55. And that's why John said in 1 John 2, he tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because he says, if any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And he says, the world will pass away. All of it's going to pass away one day. And the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God, that person, he says, will abide forever. That's where we need to be making our investment is doing the will of God. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, living righteous lives. So listen, the Lord here is pleading in Isaiah 55. He's pleading with this person that is caught up in the world. He says there, why do you labor for that which satisfies not? In the middle of verse 2 there, he says, hearken diligently unto me. And in the Hebrew, they don't know how to translate it into English well, but he's really saying, listen, listen. So they say, hearken diligently. because that emphasis there, but it's listen, listen. It's like he's pleading, listen to me, please listen to me. Don't fill yourself up on junk food, right? Eat what is good. Isn't that what he says? Verse 2, hearken diligently unto me and eat that which is good. Don't eat junk food and let your soul delight itself in fatness, in abundance. And I'm hearing in that listen, listen, that pleading, like we know about in the New Testament, Martha, Martha. I like to say things twice. It was what did he tell her there? He said, listen, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And we can get that way, all of us. But he told her, he says, there is only one thing that is needful, one thing that is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part, and he said, that won't be taken away from her. Hearing and doing the will of God, that person will abide forever. And he's saying she's chosen that one thing that was necessary, and that will not be taken away from her, because everything else can be taken away from us. So he says there in verse 3, 
incline your ear. And that means you're getting up close to where that's all you can hear is that person talking to you. He says, incline your ear and come to me. So coming to the waters in verse 1 is coming to a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Stretching out your ear to listen only to him. The voice of the shepherd. His voice needs to be supreme. That's what he's saying there. And we know that the Father in heaven spoke, this is my beloved Son. A voice from heaven came to earth, to men, and it's recorded for us to read. This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. And Hebrews 2 says, God has spoken to us through many ways, down through history, prophets, angels, but in these last days, he said, he has spoken to us through his Son. And he goes on to say, we had better not neglect that voice that has spoken to us. Because they neglected the voice just spoken by angels. Judgment came on people. And he's saying, oh, we had better give the more earnest heed to that voice. So do we hear the voice of the shepherd? Are we sitting at his feet like Mary, listening to the voice of life? Because what does he say there? Incline your ear, come unto me. Oh, we've heard that in the New Testament in Matthew. And he says, listen, hear and your soul shall live. And don't we want our souls to live? I mean, we do, don't we? He said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Give anything. So he says, come and hear that your soul may live. One thing is essential. Now, I wouldn't say people are bored. It looks like most people are paying attention. A few people aren't. But overall, if you're sitting here bored at this point and you think, man, how many times have I heard this message? This type of message. We've heard a lot of them, haven't we? Through the years, I have. Listen to me. I'll tell you when you're going to realize that one thing is necessary. If you don't listen to anything else, I say, listen to this. And that's when the crisis comes. When you get in a trial that is serious, that is when you will realize that what you thought was so important and fun is suddenly total vanity, as our friend Solomon would say. Right? Then you'll realize Jesus was right. Only one thing is really needful or necessary. Not the many things we let ourselves get so busy about. And that's when that crisis comes. You wish you had taken the time. You look back, oh, I wish I'd have taken the time. We all have to get in that quiet place and study the word and let God speak to us, right? Long for the time when I could have obeyed what the Lord had told me to do, what I knew to do had been a doer and not just a hearer. We're good at hearing, but it's hard to do. It's hard to make changes. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You get settled in your ways, and you think about all the time you wasted. I've had that happen because trials, severe trials come out of the blue, don't they? Life's moving on, all of a sudden, bam, you get that phone call. Something's going on at home. It's like serious, if you know what I mean. And it's like, boy, I don't know if I'm ready for this one yet. Just had my day going, my mind's all where else. I wasn't that spiritually minded. I got this to deal with now. Oh, boy. Wish I'd have been doing a little more the last week, the last month, right? To be ready for this because you don't know when it's coming. So the ones that don't act, Jesus says, they'll regret the fact when the storm comes. The house that looks good in peacetime 
it starts shaking when trouble comes. And that's what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, the one built on the sand, it says it fell. Looks good during peacetime, but during storm time, if you don't have that foundation built, which is seeking God, spending time with him, it says great was the fall of it. So I would say... Today, I'm not wanting this to be a negative, get on everybody's case. Let's take heed to the voice of the Savior before trouble comes. Amen? Amen? I really don't want this to be a negative message, but sometimes you've got to slap somebody upside the head so they'll listen to you. Well, let's do it before the storm strikes. And so listen, we, maybe the storm has already come and your house is, is shaking. And if that's you, it's not the time to quit though, is it? Because we get this out of this too. Look, in verse 6 and 7, he says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he was near. And here's the heart of our God. He's saying, It's not too late. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man in his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. Just repent. That's what he's saying. And what will God do? What does he promise there? Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon Oh, he'll pardon and go over that. He'll bless you. <laughs> That's the heart of our God. Repentance brings restoration. That is always the message of the Bible. Nineveh was judged. It was a done fact. But Jonah went and those people repented and God says, Oh, I see what they're doing. I'll have mercy on them. I won't destroy them. That's the heart of our God. And so as long as you're breathing and have a desire to walk with God, there is hope. And God will help all of us when our faith is faltering. Because my faith at times, I've had to cry out to God, help me. Oh man, this is a struggle. This is over my head. I'm not Mr. Big and Bad. I don't have one of those man of faith and power signs <laughs> in my office. Believe me. Because listen, we've got occasions of that. Peter, he's walking on water, right? But when he begins to sink and he cries out, it says immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and brought him up out of there. Immediately the Lord was there to help him, wasn't he? And what about the man with the epileptic boy? You know, here's Jesus has just come down on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory has been revealed. <laughs> What an impressive thing. And he has to come down on that mountain, and here he is dealing with a situation. They can't trust who he is, and he's God Almighty, veiled in flesh. But he comes down, and that man is like their disciples couldn't cast this demon out. If you can do anything, he says, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus looks at him, and he is like, if I can do anything, is that the problem, really? He said, if you can believe. Just grab hold of me. All things are possible to him that believes. That's Jesus' answer. Oh, that man was still, he was struggling though. Things hadn't worked like he thought they would. And Jesus just looks like a man. He wasn't up on that mountain with the Lord. And he says, oh, Lord, I do believe. I, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And that's where we're at at times, isn't it? <laughs> that's our prayer. Help thou mine unbelief. And he had to help him. You know why? Because God only responds to faith, not need. And so that boy was delivered. You know why? Because that father was given faith. 
Jesus did help his unbelief. That's how he was able to be delivered. So God will help our unbelief if we ask him. But look at how many times here in these two verses God pleads with us to give attention to his word. In verse 2, he says, if you will hearken diligently. Hearken diligently unto me. In verse 3, he says, incline your ear and come to me. He also says, hear and your soul will live. Three times he begs, he pleads. And we can't accuse God of not having our best interest at heart, can we? I mean, he is not like I've said it once. You should have already got it. You people are backslidden. It's too bad. No, no. Come unto me. Hear. Hearken unto me. Listen and live. And some people, you know, I think they think praying, spending time in God's presence, reading the word, and living a spirit-filled life of faith would be a life of misery, drudgery, and boring. I mean, I know there's people that think that. You're not going to get me in this faith walk. You're not going to get me into trusting God wholly and walking with him. That just seems like that would be a boring life. But listen, it's just the opposite. God is not a killjoy, believe me. Because here's why. A life of faith and holiness is the way he has designed us to live. That's the way he, our creator has made us to live that way. To live a holy life and to trust him. He's created us to find our greatest satisfaction in walking with him and looking to him. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because, listen, here, all the devil does is take desires that God has put in us, good desires. There's nothing wrong with a, a man desiring a woman, but he twists it, right? Instead of doing it God's way and just one woman, he's got it twisted to where it's multiple women. But there's nothing wrong with the desire in and of itself. And he's created us to have desire for pleasure, happiness, and joy. There's nothing wrong with that, for desiring those things, right? But the problem comes is when we seek to get those satisfied apart from him. That's the problem. Because they can be found in him, joy, happiness, and pleasure. It's right in the word. Psalm 16 says, you will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. You want to be happy, really happy and satisfied? In God's presence, it says, is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's the word of God. Joy and pleasures. Nothing wrong with that. Psalm 36, David writes, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings, and they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and you will make them drink of the river of thy pleasure. Amen. Amen. Now, sometimes you've got to work to get there, right? To work to get into the presence of God. But boy, when you experience it, it was worth everything, wasn't it? <laughs> it really is. And so God knows that our ultimate fulfillment and safety comes from knowing him personally. And that's why we have verses 6 and 7. That's why he sums it all up here. He says, listen, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he was near, is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. He'll have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. And listen, you know, God may be chastening you today. You may be in here and the problem that you're facing, the situation you're in, you know that it is of your own doing. And it just may be God is trying to get your attention and cause you to make changes. But listen, that is the time to seek the Lord, not get discouraged, and turn to him with your whole heart. That's what he's saying there in verse 7. If you'll just repent and turn to him with your whole heart, God will turn to you and forgive you. Because when it says to return unto the Lord, you have to leave somewhere to return to it, don't you? They were once at one time walking with the Lord. You only return to what you left. So listen, at one time Judah was under the chastening hand of the Lord. Took them away. Took them into another nation. And they could have got discouraged and thought, man, God hates us. Nothing else to do with this. Why has he done all this? You're in Isaiah. Put something there. Turn to Jeremiah 29. And let's see what the heart of the Lord is. I'm sure many people know this passage. Verses 11 to 14. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says, For I know the thoughts, I know them, the Lord says, that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. It appeared that his thoughts were not peace towards them. They could have read their situation and their circumstances that way. But look what he says. Then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken to you. In verse 13, and you will seek me, he says, and find me. When? When you search for me with all your heart. And God says, I will be found of you. That's a prom positive promise, saith the Lord. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So you're in chastisement. Turn to the Lord with all of your heart. He says, I will turn your captivity. It's just to get your attention, just like when you spank your kids. You're not out to destroy them. You don't have wicked thoughts towards them, but thoughts of peace to see them have a good end. And that's the way our God is. The key is verse 13. He says, when you search for me with all of your heart, does anyone do that? Do we do that? And that doesn't mean you've got to be 24 hours a day praying fast and reading your Bible, can't have time for anything else. We know that's not what we're talking about, right? It's not that. Well, let me ask you, would a teenager do that? Search for God with all their heart. That'd be a tough one because it wouldn't make you real popular. Well, listen, 2 Chronicles 34, when Josiah became king, do you know how old Josiah was when he became king? He was eight years old when it says when he began to reign. Eight years old. And Manasseh, his grandfather, was probably the most wicked king that ever ruled in Israel. Terrible. Terrible king. And his father, Manasseh's son Ammon, it says, was just as wicked. And God only allowed him to reign two years. It says, before his servants conspired to kill him. So here's Josiah. He didn't have a godly grandfather, didn't have a godly father as examples. So how would he know how to reign? Eight years old. My son John is eight years old. I mean, I just could not picture him reigning over a kingdom. <laughs> Maybe over his veggie tails, but that's about it, right? But he didn't have a godly grandfather or father to, to know as an example. So how did he know how to reign as a godly king? 
You know, it could be he had a godly mother that was guiding his steps. I don't know. But what I do know is that at the age of 16, a teenager, it says in 2 Chronicles 34 that this teenager began to seek the Lord. The Bible says this, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, oh my, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father, and in the twelfth year of his reign, when he's twenty, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And listen, Josiah, it said there was no king like him. He sought and sought the Lord, it says, with all of his heart, just like we read about in Jeremiah. So we can't say that it's not possible or that no one does it because we have an account here. Josiah, a teenager, did it. Because it said this of him, And like unto him there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any king like him. And here's the impact that young man had. You think it wouldn't make a difference in our church? Anybody in here? We seek the Lord with all of our heart, give ourselves to God wholly to seek him and his power. And his holiness manifested. Listen to what this says about Josiah. The king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And it says this, he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel. And he made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. In all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Oh my, what an impact he had. Served God with all of his heart and caused the people of Israel to serve God all the days he was alive. Now, we know they turned after he was dead, but that's the kind of influence a godly person could have. A godly teenager. A 16-year-old. Who would want to be known as someone at 16 that seeks God with all their heart? Well, I'll tell you who I think would. A saved 16-year-old. Because that's the way. Or a 32-year-old. Or an 85-year-old, because that's the way we're to live as Christians, is it not? That's Christianity. <laughs> Forsaking all and following him. Giving him all of our hearts. But listen to this. Oh, I like this verse. I got saved when I was 21. Wherewithal shall I, we used to sing this song, shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. It goes on to say, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. That's Psalm 119, verses 9 to 10. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to that word, listening and obeying. And he says, I've sought thee with all of my heart. So let's, let me ask you, back to Isaiah 55, when should we seek the Lord? What does it say in verse 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when? While he is near. The time is now, is it not? Because God's power and presence 
We could take it for granted or think it'll come someday. It may not always be available. That's what's implied by that verse 6, isn't it? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. So it may not always be available to an individual or to a church. And I would say, if you're not seeking the Lord in his power, it won't be known. So if you don't mind, just hang with me here. Turn to 2 Chronicles 14. Because we're going to see here a case of when seeking God pays and when not seeking God happens. So we're talking about seeking the Lord in 2 Chronicles 14.1. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, for he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and broke down the images and cut down the groves. And look what he did in verse 4. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandments. And he also took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places, the images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. And he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. And therefore he said unto Judah, Let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And listen, you begin to seek the Lord, he will give you time to get strengthened in him before trouble comes because that's what happened here with Asa. Seeking the Lord, it said he gave him rest, gave them time to be strengthened. Because trouble did come. In verse 8 it said, Asa had an army of men that bare targets and spears out of Judah, 300,000, and out of Benjamin that bare shields and drew bows, 204 score thousand. All these were mighty men of valor. And there came out, out against them Zerah the Ethiopian with a host of 1,000, 1,300 chariots and came unto Merishah. Then Asa went out against him and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephthah. In Merishah, and Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And what was that a result of? They were strengthened. They were able to fight. They were able to defeat the enemy. Why? Because they sought the Lord ahead of time. And God gave them peace and honored that and had them ready for that battle. And so the prophet appears in chapter 15, verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa. I got a word from you, Asa. And son unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. Here's the word to us. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. And that's what had happened to them. He's encouraging them, just keep going like you have been. Seek the Lord. He'll be with you. He'll help you as long as you're doing that. But he goes on to warn them, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And it says, now for a long season, Israel had been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without the law. But when they, in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him. 
So he wasn't there, but when they turned in their trouble and sought him, guess what happened? He was found of them. So if you're in trouble today, in trouble in here today, seek the Lord. There you've got a word. You'll be found of him. He'll help you. And look down in verses 12 to 13. They entered into a covenant. They made a commitment to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart. This is the nation, Judah, Jerusalem, with all their heart, with all their soul. And whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel would be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. What if I right now asked everybody in this church, we are all as a church going to make a commitment to serve the Lord, to seek him with all of our hearts from here on out. And whoever's not interested in that, I would just ask you to leave. Would we be willing to do that? and make a commitment and a covenant before God that we as a church are going to get back to putting him first. And when they did that, though, they weren't upset. They weren't like, man, all our fun is over. No more Xbox. No, they weren't worried. It said they rejoiced and a shout went up. Oh, they were so glad because God would be with them and help them. They'd seen that happen. And the sad thing was it wasn't the end of the story. They sought the Lord for 35 years, the Bible says. We won't read it all. We've just read quite a bit. And they had peace for 20 years. And then Asa's heart apparently began to turn from seeking the Lord. And we read later, trouble came. Like trouble came to him the first time. But this time he didn't seek the Lord. You know what it said he did? It said he sought the king of Syria for help. And God sent a prophet, Hanani, and he rebuked Asa for not seeking the Lord. You saw what God did before. Why didn't you do it again? You've seen his faithfulness. What's wrong with you? And Asa was not doing good spiritually because it said he got mad and threw the prophet in jail. And that's what happens when you're not doing good spiritually. You don't want to hear the word of the Lord. You don't want to be told you're not doing well and you need to get yourself right. He wouldn't listen. And three years later, the next thing we read, three years later, Asa became diseased in his feet. And it says specifically, he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians. And next thing we read is he died. Or just turn to 16, verse 12. 35 years he walked with the Lord, started losing it in the 36th year. And three years later, in verse 12, it says, Asa in the 39th year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great, yet... In his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And next thing we read in verse 13, Asa slept with his father. What happened to Asa? What happened to his heart? And I believe Asa's heart became fallow, what the Bible calls fallow. It had been allowed to sit unplowed by the word and by God's spirit for a long time. He's resting on his past. He's resting on his former victories. And that's dangerous. So the last place, if you would, if you could turn to Hosea 10. Might be a tough one to find. But you got Daniel and then you got Hosea. Hosea 10, verse 12. 
Talking about fallow ground. The prophet says, Hosea, he says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. And in the beginning of that, he says, Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. You've got to break up that fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. That's part of doing that. That preparation. Till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So now is the time we've got to break up that fallow ground. That ground has just been sitting there unmoved. Not allowing God's spirit to, to deal with you. So when Judah and Asa sought the Lord, they saw his miraculous deliverance, didn't they? And we've seen miraculous deliverances here in this church, have we not? I know we have. I've seen it myself. And they had rest for their enemy. And let me ask you, they saw the power of God. Do we not need to see the power of God here? Amen. Seriously, I'm not just trying to do preacher talk. I mean, we really do. And don't we have the need for miracles here? We do. I'm looking at a lot of needs for miracles, many such needs. Now listen to this. A.W. Tozer, so you don't get mad at me. He had an article he wrote. It was called Miracles Follow the Plow. You want miracles? Miracles follow the plow. Listen to this. The creed of power, he wrote, cannot save a movement from barrenness. In other words, just because you say you have written in your creed, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in James 5. The prayer of faith will say, he said, just having that in your creed isn't going to save you from being barren. He says there must also be the work of power. But I am more concerned, he wrote, with the effect of this truth upon the local church and the individual. Look at the church where plentiful fruit once was the regular and expected thing, but now there is little or no fruit, and the power of God seems to be in abeyance. In other words, it just doesn't seem to be there. Look at that church. He says, what's the trouble? What's the trouble, Tozeru? He says, God hasn't changed. Nor is his purpose for that church changed in the slightest measure. He says, no, the church itself has changed. And he went on to write this, a little self-examination will reveal that it and its members have become fallow. It has lived through its early travails and has now come to accept an easier way of life. It is content to carry on its painless program its members now look to it for security rather than for guidance in the battle between good and evil. It has become a school instead of a barracks. Its members are students, not soldiers. They study the experiences of others instead of seeking new experiences of their own. And he wrote this, Miracles Follow the Plow. That's the title. The only way to power for such a church is to come out of hiding and once more take the danger encircled path of obedience you want the power of God in your life do we want it in our church Amen. we've been talking about that all morning if we'll seek the Lord and put him first we're guaranteed it by God himself he's pledged himself has he not we got to examine ourselves each one of us individually not look around we need to look at ourselves and we've got to seek the Lord with all of our hearts verse 6 while he may be found and what day is that it's today. Amen. 2 Corinthians 6 says today is the day of salvation. Amen. We're never promised tomorrow. And Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and first means only. 
doesn't mean do that and then do a million other things. Only, he says, seek the first the kingdom of God. And he had to mean to do that today. You know why? Because he goes right on, Matthew 6, 34, and says, Take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So today is the day we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. <laughs> but we need... The power of our God in our midst right now, not tomorrow, not someday, do we? But now, don't we? I mean, we do. I'll say it for y'all. Listen, Jim Simbler said this. He says, what am I going to do? He says, am I going to live in this Christian fantasy about what God once did and then what God's going to do one day? In other words, we're going to live in the past or live about one day this, we think this is going to happen? He says, but then your life goes by and you never see God do anything. And that can happen. Your present just keeps sliding on into the future and all oh, God's going to do something down the road and that just never seems to get there because it's sliding ahead with your present. Got to bring it here. We got to bring it all present, don't we? We do. But verse 7 and following promises that if we will return and seek the Lord, we, he'll have mercy on us and we can enjoy his blessings. That's what the rest of that chapter is about, Isaiah 55. But let the wicked forsake his way. Seek the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man is not. Let him return unto the Lord. He'll have mercy upon him and to our God he'll abundantly pardon. So let me ask, in conclusion, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty in here? Do you desire, as David did, to experience the presence of the living God? The presence and power of the living God. Or are you someone in here that has tried to pursue the world and you realize there is, really is no satisfaction in that, in the pursuit of the world? Then let's do what the Lord says here. Let's hearken diligently to the Lord. Come to his table. Eat that which is good. Let us make knowing the word of God and not only knowing, but living the word of God our top priority as a church. Let's do that. Let's grab hold of the one thing that is necessary because it is the word of God and the power of God. Let's break up our fallow ground. Whatever God is telling us to do when we read that word, we've made a covenant to seek him, which means we will obey him and put him first and do what we know we should do, right? Because what we're reading here in Isaiah, he's given us his pledge that if we seek the Lord with all of our heart, we'll find him. And if we return, he'll have abundant mercy on us. Because that's what he's talking about in the rest of this chapter. He says, my word has gone forth. I've made that pledge. I've given you my word. And just like rain comes down, it has its desired effect. He's saying, so I've given the invitation. I've told you that if you'll seek me, you'll find me. If you'll forsake your ways and come to me, I will have mercy on you. He's saying that word will have its effect. It'll change your life. And what you're looking for and lacking in your Christianity will be there. The presence, the blessings, the manifestations that we're looking for will be there in our lives. He's given us his pledge. That's what it's saying there in verse 11. He says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. In other words, what he has just said and promised. It won't return unto me void, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. The lamb has paid the price, Isaiah 53. The invitation is open. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You'll find him. We will find him. 
right? And when that happens, that's why the ending is. I wish I could spend more time on this, but there will be joy in our midst. That's what verse 12 is all about. For you will go out with joy. God is back. He's restored me. He's manifested. My arm is healed now. I can walk. My child can walk. There'll be joy in our midst. That's what he's saying. And what he's saying, he goes on to say, and all creation will rejoice with us. Those mountains and hills that were our obstacles, he says, you go through as you're passing through, he says, they'll break forth with joy at what God has done. The trees, their limbs will be clapping in praise to God. Look what he's done for his redeemed. All creation, he's saying. No more briars. Ah, the briars and thorns, these trials, no, they're gone. They've been replaced by fruitful trees. In other words, our trials now have turned to gold. And there will be joy breaking forth and rejoicing. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, hey, look at the end of verse 13. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. An everlasting memorial is what we will be as a church and individuals. Because back then when a king would win a war, they'd put memorials up to themselves. But guess what would happen? They'd get broken down by other kings or time would destroy and decay. But he says, oh, no, no, no. You seek me and you find my presence in your life and the blessings and the manifestation. You, he says, you'll be a trophy of my grace for all eternity, forever. Amen. Always you will be a memorial we will be. And we'll have the testimonies of this is what our God did for us. They'll never end. They'll never cease. And so I would say the living God of, of Asa and Josiah, he granted them his presence and power because they sought him. And he'll do the same for us. And the God of the book of Acts that we read about, right, did the same as they sought him. He granted them his presence and power, and he will do the same for us. Amen? I mean, does the Bible say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? The healings and miracles we read about are ours if we'll seek the Lord. He's not forsaken us here in Shelbyville. So we will, will we not, all of us? I'm not going to ask for a pledge verbally, but let's pledge it in our hearts. We will seek the Lord while he may be found, and we will call upon him while he is near. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray. And Father, we do just thank you, Lord, for this word of encouragement that you've given us, Lord, that as we as a church or we as an individual, Lord, if we'll seek your face and put you first, just as the men that we read about in the Bible countless times, Lord, those that sought you, they were found of you and your power was demonstrated in their lives. And we just thank you that you've given us that promise. You've given us that pledge that as we receive this word that we've heard today and put you first, we will be found of you. We will be known by you, Lord, and we'll know your presence and power. And I thank you that you'll do that. For us in this church today, Lord, that is just my prayer, that we will be a church that seeks you. And as Israel of old, we know your power and presence. And I thank you that you'll do that for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And stand to your feet. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. the Lord while he may be found call ye upon him while he
your soul shall live. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye So oh.